The title of the message is A Unified Story That Leads to Jesus. And we're going to look at Acts 6 and 7 primarily today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us again this morning. What a privilege it is. And now as we explore your word, we ask that you would bring, God, just a, a clarity, that you'd open our, our eyes, our hearts, Lord, to see you for who you are in Scripture, that we, that we just stand amazed. Lord, thank you that you are faithful to direct our path, that you're faithful to put your finger on areas of our lives that, Lord, uh, uh, maybe aren't pleasing to you right now, but you, you're calling us to change, all for our good and for your glory. We want to be open to that. Father, direct our steps. Continue to envision us and fill our hearts with an understanding of what it means to be disciples of, of Jesus, to be followers, to be students, to be learners. So God, help us to press in by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I enjoy a good biography, uh, and Valerie introduced me to author David McAuliffe, and, and I, I was hooked. So David McAuliffe, he's written the, uh, a lot of books, The Wright Brothers, John Adams, a book on Theodore Roosevelt, a book on great explorers and engineers and artists. And these individuals were seemingly born to do what they did, and yet their character and drive to do what they did was almost always born out of hardship and opposition of some kind. Well, today we're given a brief biography of a man named Stephen. After a complex and serious problem is raised in the church in the form of a complaint, Stephen is chosen, along with six other men, to meet that problem head on. We're going to look at three things. First, growing pains. Second, false accusations. And third, a faithful witness. First, growing pains. Let's look at Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to, to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. This proposal uh, pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, uh, <laughs> Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmen Parmenas, and Nicholas. Just these guys, okay? They chose these guys. Um, and they, they were from, uh, Nicholas was from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We'll pause there. Growing pains. Growing pains in a young church, in the early church, this new community. Now we have an 11 and a 13-year-old, and so we hear all about growing pains. They hurt, but even though they hurt and they cause restlessness at night, they produce something good. They produce growth. And if local church St. Pete is going to grow, we better expect and be ready for growing pains. If we never experience growing pains, we have a bigger problem than when we do experience them. 
So followers of Jesus here in Acts chapter 6 were increasing in number. And as you can imagine, there are logistical problems when you're growing at the rate they were growing. And Luke, he doesn't present the church. I love this. He doesn't present the church as this carefully filtered Instagram account. It's not how the church has come at us. We learned that last week, right, with Ananias and Sapphira, where everyone's just happy and everything seems just so perfect. That's not how he presents the church to us. Instead, we have these Hellenistic Jews. These are Grecian Jews who complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were overlooked in the daily distribution of food. A very practical need wasn't being met. What's going on here? Jews from all over the world had gathered in Jerusalem They had heard about Jesus as the Messiah, were coming to faith in him. Those who had been dispersed uh, and and whose primary language was Greek were known as Hellenistic Jews. Their primary language, their native tongue was was Greek, and their culture, they knew the Greek culture. But then you had the Hebraic Jews who were from the area of Jerusalem, who spoke Aramaic, and, and, and that was their native tongue. And there was apparently an issue that the Hellenistic uh, believers and widows were not being uh, provided for, the daily distribution. Now, the church was striving to live as a single family, and, and, and already this is proving to come with some serious challenges. Normally, widows would be taken care of among their own blood relationships, right? Naturally. However, what do you do when a widow embraces Jesus as Messiah, and then those family ties are severed? What happens? Well, the widow's needs needed to be met in her new family. And that's what was happening. They were part of a new family. So why this neglect? There was language barrier. There were cultural differences. There were old prejudices and tension and jealousy. It was complicated. Was this intentional? It happened. Okay? These widows were being neglected. It happened. And if it wasn't addressed, it would have led to serious disunity. It had to be addressed. And the apostles know what they shouldn't do. They know what they shouldn't do. They know that they they can't address this need. They know that they can't meet this need. They need to give themselves to what they're called to. They had a calling. They had a responsibility, and they understood it. The apostles understood their primary responsibility was to give their attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. They were, they were not about to give themselves to something that would take them away from that primary calling and responsibility. That's important for us to see. But I can't think of a more important task than feeding widows. And yet, the apostles would not give themselves to that. It's interesting. And so they delegate. Now, good leadership involves delegation, which involves trust. This is an administrative crisis in Acts 6, but it's more than that. It's more than that. And the apostles put it on the church to choose seven men from among you, it says, who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So we see these qualifications that are needed to minister to people of varied backgrounds where there's tension and jealousy. This isn't just about distributing food. That's involved. But they needed qualified men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It's interesting that these are the requirements that they're looking for, spiritual requirements, because they understood the seriousness of the situation. They understood the tension that had been created by this neglect. And so the responsibility would be turned completely over to these men to figure it out. 
Maybe they themselves weren't actually doing uh, the serving of the food, though I think they were involved in that, but they were responsible to figure out how to get it done. And so the church, uh, they, they chose seven men from among them, and then they were prayed over. So the problem that was introduced to this new community, these growing pains that, are, that, that, were, uh, that were coming out of this new community, actually, it brought health, and it produced leadership and ongoing care. That's what it produced. Now, sometimes well, we hear a complaint, and we, we hear of problems, and we just we don't want to deal with it. We want to run from it. I, I do believe that we're going to grow as a community, and we're going to experience growing pains. Not only numerically uh, are we growing, but in other ways. And that, that's going to come at us at times in the form of complaints and problems. And that's just how it is. Whenever you gather a, a diverse group like this together, though we're unified in Christ, there are going to be some issues that come up. Just think of your own family and think of how you have to walk through, walk out issues. It's going to happen. But I believe, just like what happened here in Acts 6, it's going to produce health. And for them, it produced uh, faithful and responsible leaders to take on responsibility. It, it produced strength and unity and ongoing care for widows who needed to be fed. And their responsibility, these seven, was to wait on tables. And the verb is to serve. It's where we get the word deacon. It's interesting, Chuck, that you were of the, the group, the deacons. The, bike, the biker group, the deacons. Okay, but these seven were called to wait on tables, to serve, to give themselves to service. Now, Jesus said himself in Matthew 20, 23, verse 11, that the, the greatest among you will be your servant. We're all called to serve. But there was a, a unique role given to these men. Now, it could be said that the seven were the first deacons of the church, even though they weren't called deacons per se. And I believe that's true. They were fulfilling the role that would eventually be defined as this office within the church where you have elders and then you have deacons who take on responsibilities. And you were introduced to our deacons, or at least some of our deacons, last week when we talked about house groups because our house group leaders are deacons, an extension of pastoral care to meet the needs of others within the community. The apostles prayed for them. They laid their hands on them, a symbol of putting them into a specific role and giving them a specific task. And this is where we meet Stephen. And he's the leader of the seven. He's the first on the list, and he's the one described in detail. His characteristics are are just made very plain. It says in verse 5, the proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and, and the rest of the guys. It's interesting, Stephen's role, his responsibility within the church, it was born out of problems and complaints. And his responsibility and his role would be for the sake of the church's unity and witness. To preserve the church's unity and witness. And look what happened. Look what the result was when faithful men were appointed to a task that though the apostles could have taken on, they knew they shouldn't. And address this very serious issue. Look what happened in verse 7. So the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And, interestingly, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The apostles knew what their role was. The seven deacons knew what their role was. 
The church had appointed them to this task, and they were faithfully walking it out. And it produced growth. The second, we see false accusations. Now Luke goes on, uh, he goes on and on about Stephen in a way that is unique. Uh, Look at verse 8. Now Stephen, so he selects Stephen out of the seven. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of uh, Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom and spirit, uh, against the wisdom the spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. Chapter 6, verse 5, it says that Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, a man full of God's grace and power. To do what? God was working miracles through Stephen. Well, hold on, pause. I thought that was the apostles' responsibility. I thought that's what, I thought that, that's what they were called to do. What's Stephen do? I thought he was a deacon waiting on tables responsible to organize and distribute this food to widows. What's going on? Why is he being used in the area of the miraculous? His responsibility to serve widows and oversee the distribution of food, it didn't keep him from walking in and exercising other gifts. Have you limited in your mind what God is able to do through you? Have you dismissed things? You're like, no, this is my lane and I'm staying in it. This is what I do and this is Really, in a way, have you said, this is how God's going to work through me? I'm administrative, so that's all I'm... But, but would you step out? Would you step out and pray for someone in a way that maybe feels uncomfortable, but you're trusting God to use you? Would you believe God to use you in other ways? Apparently, Stephen believed God could, could use him beyond serving widows, their food, and organizing all that. Though that was an important task, and it led to the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem and many coming to know uh, uh, Christ for who he is. Will you believe God to use you? Now, interestingly, the opposition that Stephen faced, it came from a Greek-speaking synagogue. He was serving Greek-speaking widows, and now this Greek-speaking synagogue is bringing all this accusation against Stephen, and they begin to argue or dispute and question with Stephen, but they could not stand against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And so we learn about Stephen even more, a man full of faith and full of power and the Holy Spirit, and a man who was able to defend what he believed and stand up for righteousness, and a man who walked with wisdom and was dependent on the spirit and all of that. You see how many times the Spirit is mentioned in Stephen's life as this qualification. Are we walking dependent and full and influenced by God the Spirit? Is that that a characteristic in our life? Stephen's life, his service and faithful witness led to this pivotal point in the early church. A dividing line was drawn, as we'll see in, in just a few minutes. But here, Stephen is clearly 
being targeted by this synagogue. He's targeted out of the entire community. They, it says that they secretly persuade men to say that they have heard Stephen speak blasphemy against Moses and against God, which, listen, this is serious accusation. Serious. It says that they stirred up the people and teachers of the law and the elders. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now, this is the official court uh, of, of the temple. All the 70 elders gathering together would make up the Sanhedrin, and they would bring judgment and make decisions. Uh, this is a serious thing. It's getting real. It's turned into a trial that could end very badly for Stephen. It says that they produced false witnesses. They accused him of speaking against the temple and the law. Jesus was accused of the very same thing, if you remember. It reminds us of Jesus' trial. In John 15, it's interesting that, that Jesus, he talks about the fact that this would happen to his followers. John 15, turn with me in verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. We'll stop there. Jesus said it would happen. As they hated Jesus, they will hate us. And in hating us, they're hating Jesus. The opposition is really against the Jesus that Stephen has proclaimed and continues to proclaim. But listen to how he responded to this opposition. We see in verse 15, all who were sitting there in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This has never once been said about my face. In fact, most people are like, are you okay? Are you mad? When I'm not mad. You doing okay? I guess my, you know, my resting face isn't a good one. But now you know. And just so you know, I'm not mad. Okay? But Stephen, his face was like that of an angel meaning it radiated humble confidence, spoke of his innocence and of God's presence. So in the middle of arguments, in the middle of controversies, in the middle of false accusations and a serious charge before the highest court of the temple, he, he didn't look bent out of shape, he didn't look stressed out or angry or scared. He had the face of an angel, and it stood out to everyone who was present. Stephen knew the word of God told a story that was moving forward to a goal a story that found its fulfillment in Jesus. And he was about to let that story be his defense. Third, we see faithful witness. And what a faithful witness Stephen has been and will continue to be. And this is where the biography of Stephen really gets exciting. You know, I read a biography recently on the artist Michelangelo, and the best parts were where the author quoted Michelangelo himself. I wanted to hear from the artist himself. And here, we're about to hear from Stephen himself what was most important to him and how he would tell the story. 
Now, some dismiss his defense as a disconnected history lesson because it is a long speech. When he finally stands up to defend himself and to, uh, to, to speak before the Sanhedrin, it goes on for quite a while. In fact, it's the longest recorded speech in the book of Acts, but for good reason. It's brilliant. It is a brilliant speech. Instead of saying, oh, no, 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 you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Instead of going straight to Jesus and the resurrection, Stephen does something that we should learn to do as well. Stephen walks them through the storyline of the Bible. It's the story of Jesus. It's a unified story. The Bible, these 66 books, it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. And Stephen understood the Old Testament from the law, the prophets, everything that was written. It was pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus the story of Jesus, it, it didn't just drop out of thin air. It has roots in an ancient story. And Stephen knows that and had to wrestle with it himself and come to the conclusion that Jesus is actually the answer to everything we've been hoping for and longing for. He is the Messiah, this long-awaited-for anointed king who would come and restore us and bring healing and hope and restoration in a way that we didn't even fathom. And so he carefully brings them to the point of the story. As he begins to his speech, he, he's addressing their traditions. He's addressing their accusations. And he, he wants them, he wants his hearers, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the temple and the high priest himself, he wants them to connect the dots in ways that they had never done before. And so he draws out specific themes along the way. I, I want you to listen as we read this speech. I want you to listen uh, for Israel's rejection of God's chosen leaders. It's a theme. It's a repeated theme throughout his speech. And it all comes to a head at the rejection of Jesus. So um, I've asked Valerie to help me read this so that uh, we have different voices uh, reading and so we can uh, follow along okay and stay with it. So let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1. Thank you, Valerie. Mm -hmm. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left in the land in, uh, of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. 
and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and his ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abram had bought from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. At the time, or as the time drew near, God, or as the time drew near for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, He saw that one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, Moses came up, came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreated mistreated the other, pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to get a closer look. And he heard the Lord say, I am the, Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. 
But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in in, in the wilderness, people of Israel... You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the, the star of your god, uh, Raphon, and I, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. You still with me? I know it's long. What is Stephen doing? Is this just another history lesson, as some commentators have said, unrelated to, to a proper defense? Not, not at all. And, and I, I was tempted for us not to read the whole thing because I was afraid that we were all going to check out. But the truth is, this is God's word. This is a, a part of our story. This is our history, and it's a beautiful summation, really, of what God did through the people of Israel, starting with Abraham. And this is why Stephen tells the story. He's telling them the story of God's people. And along the way, he's bringing out these themes, and he's highlighting major characters for a reason. He's saying it's all been pointing to something. And along the way, we've been rejecting. God's people have been rejecting him. He starts with Abraham. Abraham is where the story of the Jewish people begins. The promise to Abraham was that they would ultimately, it would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. And then Joseph, he's rejected. He suffers, and yet he became a deliverer. Joseph's life points to Jesus. Moses, he's rejected. He encounters Yahweh at the burning bush, and he leads God's people out of Egypt, a deliverer who says that a prophet would come just like him, and ultimately it's pointing again to Jesus. And then he mentions Israel's disobedience and stubborn rejection and sinful idolatry. And then he mentions David, who wanted to build a temple for God, and, but it wasn't happening with David, so Solomon eventually did it. But that the temple's pointing to something greater, that you, you can't keep God contained in, 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 a, in a temple. And then his speech takes this 
prophetic turn and moves into a prophetic tone. He calls all those gathered, would have been about 100 of them, just like here today, the Sanhedrin, which would have made up 70, and then others gathered. He calls them stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. This is Old Testament language. And he says, your fathers killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, of Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. He's saying this, listen, you are repeating the very mistake of those who went before us. And his speech, it just culminates in their rejection of Jesus. It's a, it's a brilliant defense. He says, I know this story of old. I'm leaning on it too. But I've come, that it's, I've come to see it's fulfilled in Christ. The story of Jesus, it begins where another story ends. Church, the story of Jesus is a story of fulfillment, of promises that were made in the Old Testament and kept by God. So what's been anticipated in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. So like a, uh, like really like a string, uh, a necklace holding all the beads in place. That's what's what Jesus is. And all these stories, all these characters are like the beads on the necklace. And Jesus just holds it all together. But many of us, we know the stories of the Bible. But if they're left as unconnected stories, we miss it. We miss the beauty and the depth and the width of the gospel we proclaim And so maybe this morning you're just seeing this for the first time. Maybe you're tracking, and as you heard the story of old told, one that was a bit familiar to you, or maybe it wasn't familiar to you at all, but as you you heard it read, as you listened to the words of Stephen's speech, you're like, oh my goodness, all these characters, all of these events, they're pointing to the one who was to come, the righteous one, and it's coming alive in your heart, and maybe your mind is spinning and your heart is racing. Well, you're in good company. When Jesus, after he was resurrected, he appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he explained to them that all had to be fulfilled. Everything had to be fulfilled in the prophets and in the law and in the Psalms about him. All the scriptures were pointing to him. And and when he disappeared from their sight, they said, our hearts were burning within us as he told us these things. It's all connected. It's one story. A unified story that leads to Jesus. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me, Jesus said in Luke 24. It must be accomplished. Well, after this speech, what happens? Let's continue to read. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look. He said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Yeah, it got dark 
real quick. The temple court reached its verdict and a mob rushed Stephen while Jesus, the judge of all, Lord of all, and Stephen's faithful and righteous advocate, Jesus stands. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father stands. The one with all authority stands. Stephen is the first martyr of the early church. Even in his death, he follows Jesus. He prays for his enemies, entrusting himself to God. Stephen died, and the church scattered. It led to great persecution. I said it was a pivotal point in the church's history, and it it was. Dividing line had been drawn. Things got dark. People were let off to prison. Everyone scattered. Everyone, except the apostles. What did Jesus say would happen? In Acts 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so even in the midst of this darkness, even in the midst of this persecution and opposition and the death of Stephen, and they're just mourning deeply for this one that they loved and who who stood boldly and faithfully for Christ, what did it lead to? It led to them scattering, and along the way, they start to bring this gospel truth of who Jesus is to Judea and Samaria, and eventually we're going to learn to the ends of the earth. All right, so what does this do for us? Let me ask this. What will the growing pains of local church St. Pete produce? They're, they're, they're coming. I already feel them. Will we take on whatever comes our way with faith and grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit like Stephen? I want to. I really do. Will we see, like Stephen, the Bible is this unified story that points to Jesus. And when we're talking to others about Jesus, do we root it in this ancient story? Now, you might say, man, am I going to tell that story? Maybe bits and pieces of it. Do you know the story? Go back and read this beautiful summary of the story of the Old Testament. It's a great summary for us. Become more and more familiar with where this story of Jesus came from and what it grew out of and what it's rooted in. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus. The book of Acts, as we're going to find, as they continue to proclaim Christ, they root everything. They proclaim Christ out of the scriptures, and the scriptures they had was the Old Testament. Do we know how to tell that story? Do we know how to tell the story of fulfillment, of promises met? And will we make that story our defense? Oh, the opposition's coming. No, you'll be the target of somebody. What will be your defense? Let's pray. Father, we pray. As we learn to follow Jesus, that we would make your word our defense. And that we would see the beauty of your word. That it is a unified story that points us to Jesus. Father, we're thankful. Thankful for Stephen's witness. His example. What a a hero of the faith. What a man who who was just full of conviction and courage. I want to be like him. But his faith was rooted in the reality of what you did for him in Jesus, and now it's our turn. 
May our faith be a reflection of what you have done for us in Christ. And may we walk boldly and humbly and full of the Spirit in what, in, 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 as we confront opposition and as we walk out our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.